today's training is CBT for psychosis symptom specific interventions. My name is Jean Lundquist. I'm an LCSW and implementation specialist on the PMHP team. I have done a CBT for psychosis training before, but that was really very introductory in that it focused on symptoms and understanding CBT basics and then some third wave techniques because I love mindfulness and you can use it <laughs> with pretty much anything. Um, so today is hopefully a continuation upon that training. So thank you all for being here today. I know um, these are wild times and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you all work very hard. So thank you again for your participation today. So we have to have some learning objectives because you get CEUs if you need them today. So <laughs> there's two CEUs. Hopefully we can demonstrate an understanding of core beliefs and how cognitive distortions work for clients experiencing psychosis. And then applying CBT interventions to address at least one symptom of psychosis, whether it be hallucinations, delusions, or negative symptoms and then identifying another third wave CBT technique because why not? Let's add some more mindfulness skills, but today we'll be focusing on compassion-focused therapy, whereas last time we were focusing on grounding and acceptance and commitment therapy. So just a couple basics and then we're gonna dive right in. What is CBT for psychosis? It's a form of psychotherapy that engages the person in examining and challenging their psychotic experiences and developing coping strategies to manage symptoms. What are the goals of CBT for psychosis? And we're gonna be using CBTP just as an abbreviation so it doesn't take up all our slides. The goal really pertains to what the client finds distressing, not what I as the clinician find distressing for them. If they don't have a problem with the delusion that they are a saint and they can't work because they're a saint and it's not impacting their safety and they're housed, we're not really gonna work on that with them because they're happy, they're satisfied with their life and that experience. So we really have to collaborate to see what they want to work on and what they want to accomplish. And the goal is that hopefully it reduces the occurrence of symptoms and the distress that those symptoms are associated with. Okay, and then we have the core components, right? So we need a therapeutic alliance. Without it, we really can't get much done. We need that trust. We need that trauma-informed care, that sense of safety. Otherwise, our interventions are really not going to be effective. Um, then education and normalization of symptoms. We'll go into some examples of how to do this, but I think it's such a vital piece. I touch on it a lot because I don't think we spend enough time on trying to reduce the shame and stigma that so many people with psychosis feel um, because they're often you know, not believed or told they're crazy. It can be a really traumatic and lonely experience to have psychosis. So to have someone really validate their experience and the feelings that they're going through can be very healing. 
And then we have the case formulation and treatment plan. And that's where we're once again, identifying the goals that they want to accomplish, likely reducing the distress of auditory hallucinations or new delusional thoughts that are impacting their ability to be around others if they feel like they can't go outside. Or perhaps we're trying to work through some negative symptoms of like abolition or asociality where they're not motivated, they're not social, but they desire to be. And then the goal is relapse and recovery, a closing phase. So I have some bias here because I think recovery can be a long road. Life happens to all of us. So sometimes there will be a relapse of symptoms. And I've seen that with a lot of my clients that have had psychosis. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I guess, you know, the goal here is that that doesn't happen and that they can go on with their life with the skills they've used, even if the psychosis doesn't go away, which for many it doesn't, they at least feel like they can handle it on their own. And if not, hopefully they can come back and have support from us once again. Okay, so the standard length of treatment for CBT for psychosis is nine to 12 months with 45 to 60 minute sessions. And the standard is focused on formulation driven, which is in depth, but we're focusing on low intensity CBT for psychosis. Um, I still think it can be in depth because you all have those mandated behavioral health assessments that are super long. <laughs> so hopefully you'll have an in-depth formulation to guide you nonetheless, regardless of the intensity of the treatment. And I'm focusing on this because a lot of these clients that we're interacting with we're not having like a typical therapy session in an office with, we're meeting on the curb, we're walking and talking. They're not able to sit still for 45 minutes. We often have to help them with their SSI or get other things done. So my focus here is really skills that you can help them build in a more informal setting. And what's good is that studies show that low intensity CBT for psychosis has been just as effective as standard CBT for psychosis. There haven't been studies that compare the two directly, but I think it's nice to know that it works. So let's talk more about those positive outcomes of CBT for psychosis. We're trying to make a lot of linkages here. We're trying to develop some reflection and insight, which we'll talk more about. Linking the past and the present. Um, linking our emotions and our responses to emotions. And then linking our experiences and our feelings. Our, our experiences and our thoughts. Sorry, I have too many windows up. <laughs> so. All of these outcomes um, can also lead to not just an improvement of symptoms, but also an improvement from the therapeutic relationship. Um, normalization uh, can be very powerful to show how psychosis can be built up by genetics, stress, trauma, lots of different life factors. And locating the development of psychosis within one's life experience can be very powerful. So many people that have psychosis can often feel like care is done to them rather than shaped by them. 
especially when they've been forced into the mental health system, as we all know, with those 5150s that are very necessary a lot of the time, but they still have this negative impact on clients a lot of the time and therapy. Um, and then the, de the, the delivery of hope. Many different studies said how this was a very valued outcome by clients and that they were feeling hopeless. And if our clients don't have hope for a future, they don't have hope to go on, that's really concerning. So it's great to know that CBT for psychosis helps with that. And that's really where we want to start is to understand what their valued outcomes are when working with their psychosis. It may not be as straightforward as a reduction in symptoms. It may be just wanting to be more independent or be able to communicate clearly with others. So all of those outcomes sound great, but I bet some of you are thinking my client has no insight. There's no way I can get to that with them. We can't even talk about their symptoms. Insert scenario here. So what I'm going to focus on now, uh, probably too much, but I hope you'll go on this journey with me, <laughs> is the framework of how we approach CBT for psychosis because it can be really beneficial to opening ourselves and our clients to new perspectives. And there was this really great study in 2017 that examined if people that had a diagnosis of schizophrenia lacked insight into their illness because they could not apply an internal schema of mental illness to themselves. So what does that mean? It means they were asked to classify a short series of vignettes and consider the subjects that were from a third person perspective. So like Harry or Susie and classify them as having a medical illness, no illness or a psychiatric illness. Now for all these vignettes, they were able to make these distinctions clearly but some of these vignettes had their own stories in them. And when participants picked up on that, they would change their answers. One even saying, maybe the poison was real. And when discussing their own mental health, they would exempt themselves saying they weren't mentally ill, they had emotional problems, psychiatric problems, or they were mentally ill at one time, but they weren't anymore. So when researchers shifted these vignettes from their first person experience to another name to third person, they were open to classifying them as, a men as having a mental illness. And I think this is so important to highlight because of stigmatization. They would only deny mental illness if it was limited to their own self-perception. And it's because, in my opinion, not a lot of people really want to have psychosis. No one wants to be labeled a schizophrenic or a person living with schizophrenia or being affected by it. For many, a diagnosis can be really healing, but that's often more reserved for the socially acceptable diagnoses of depression, anxiety, and trauma. And even that can be a huge journey in itself, depending on your support system. So outside of the stigma, when patients denied mental illness, it wasn't because they were unaware of their symptoms. It was because their minds were, held, were full of strongly held beliefs, contrary to the conclusion that they were ill. 
So their minds are full of these different beliefs rather than empty of awareness. I think it's important to highlight and to remember and to ground ourselves in the fact that if a client reports hearing voices or seeing things, they have to be aware of the experience. And just a fun aside for when we approach things, 40% of Americans don't believe in evolution. And that's not a delusion. That's a strongly held belief. We're not classifying as a mental illness. And I think in this political climate, there's lots of alternative beliefs. And if we have people that believe those things and they're in our lives, we have to work within them, not against them to have a good relationship. So here's where I'm going to share a TED talk that talks a little bit more about psychosis and reality. I'm going to stop sharing my screen so I can share the video. And because it's a bit long, I'm going to start it off um, at a midpoint where he's talking about an example of how we interpret our reality. Um, uh, so if you'd like to watch it on your own, please do. But we're going to start from about the six minute mark. All right. How quickly the brain can use new predictions to change what we consciously experience. Have a listen to this. Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything. Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. Yeah? So you can now hear words there. Once more for luck. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. Okay, so what's going on here is, is the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes what you consciously hear. Now, all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. Let me give you one more example of perception as this active, constructive process. In this, in, here we've combined immersive virtual reality with image processing to simulate the effects of overly strong perceptual predictions on experience. In this panoramic video, we've transform the world, which is in this case Sussex campus, into a psychedelic playground. We've processed the footage using an algorithm based on Google's Deep Dream to simulate the effects of overly strong perceptual predictions, in this case, to see dogs. And you can see this is a very strange thing. When perceptual predictions are too strong, as they are here, the result looks very much like the kinds of hallucinations people might report in altered states or perhaps even in psychosis. Now, think about this for a minute. If, if hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. 
In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. <laughs> Now I'm going to tell you that your experience of being a self, the specific experience of being you, is also a controlled hallucination generated by the brain. Now this seems a very strange idea, right? Yes, visual illusions might deceive my eyes, but how could I be deceived about what it means to be me? For most of us, the experience of being a person is so familiar, so unified, and so continuous that it's difficult not to take it for granted. But we shouldn't take it for granted. There are, in fact, many different ways we experience being a self. There's the experience of having a body and of being a body. There are experiences of perceiving the world from a first-person point of view. There are experiences of intending to do things and of being the cause of things that happen in the world. And there are experiences of being a continuous. And distinctive person over time, built from a rich set of memories and social interactions. Now, many experiments show, and psychiatrists and neurologists know very well, that these different ways in which we experience being a self can all come apart.、And、what this means is the basic background experience of being a unified self is a rather fragile construction of the brain, another experience which, just like all others, requires explanation. So let's return to the bodily self. How does the brain generate the experience of being a body and of having a body? Well, just the same principles apply. The brain makes its best guess about what is and what is not part of its body. And there's a beautiful experiment in neuroscience to illustrate this. And unlike most neuroscience experiments, this is one you can do at home. All you need is one of these and a couple of paintbrushes. Now, in the rubber hand illusion, a person's real hand is hidden from view, and that fake rubber hand is placed in front of them. Then both hands are simultaneously stroked with a paintbrush while the person stares at the fake hand. Now, for most people, after a while, this leads to the very uncanny sensation that the fake hand is in fact part of their body. And the idea is that the congruence between seeing touch and feeling touch on an object. That looks like a hand and is roughly where a hand should be is enough evidence for the brain to make its best guess that the fake hand is in fact part of the body. <laughs> so you can measure all kinds of clever things, right? You can measure skin conductance and startle responses, but there's no need. It's clear the guy in blue. Has assimilated the fake hand. Now this means that even experiences of what our body is is a kind of best guessing, a kind of controlled hallucination by the brain. Now there's one more thing. We don't just experience our bodies as objects in the world from the outside. We also experience them from within. We all experience the sense of being a body from the inside. And sensory signals coming from the inside of the body are continually telling the brain. About the state of the internal organs, how the heart is doing, what blood pressure is like, lots of things, and this kind of perception, which we call interoception, is rather overlooked. But it's critically important because perception and regulation of the internal state of the body, well, that's what keeps us alive. Here's another version of the rubber hand illusion. This is from our lab at Sussex, and here people see a virtual reality version of their hand, which flashes red and back either in time or out of time. With their heartbeat, and when it's flashing in time with their heartbeat, people have a stronger sense that it's in fact part of their body. So experiences of having a body 
are deeply grounded in perceiving our bodies from within. There's one last thing I want to draw your attention to, which is that experiences of the body from the inside are very different from experiences of the world around us. When I look around me, the world seems full of objects: tables, chairs, rubber hands, people, you lot, even my own body. In the world, I can perceive it as an object from the outside. But my experiences of the body from within—they're not like that at all. I don't perceive my kidneys here, my liver here, my spleen. I don't know where my spleen is, but somewhere.、Um, I don't perceive my insides as objects. In fact, I don't experience them much at all unless they go wrong. And this is important, I think. Perception of the internal state of the body isn't about figuring out what's there. It's about control and regulation, keeping the physiological variables within the tight bounds that are compatible with survival. When the brain uses predictions to figure out what's there, we perceive objects as the causes of sensations. But when the brain uses predictions to control and regulate things, we experience how well or how badly that control is going. So our most basic experiences of being a self, of being an embodied organism, are deeply grounded in the biological mechanisms that keep us alive. And when we follow this idea all the way through, we can start to see that all of our conscious experiences, since they all depend on the same mechanisms of predictive perception, all stem from this basic drive to stay alive. We experience the world and ourselves. With, through, and because of our living bodies, let me bring things together step by step. What we consciously see depends on the brain's best guess of what's out there. Our experienced world comes from the inside out, not just the outside in. The rubber hand illusion shows that this applies to our experiences of what is and what is not our body. And these self-related predictions depend critically on sensory signals coming from deep inside the body. And finally, experiences. Of being an embodied self are more about control and regulation than figuring out what's there. So our experiences of the world around us and ourselves within it—well, they're kinds of controlled hallucinations that have been shaped over millions of years of evolution to keep us alive in worlds full of danger and opportunity. We predict ourselves into existence. Now I'll leave you with three implications of all this. First. Just as we can misperceive the world, we can misperceive ourselves when the mechanisms of prediction go wrong. Understanding this opens many new opportunities in psychiatry and neurology because we can finally get at the mechanisms rather than just treating the symptoms in conditions like depression and schizophrenia. Second, what it means to be me cannot be reduced to or uploaded to a software program running on a robot, however smart or sophisticated. We are biological flesh-and-blood animals whose conscious experiences are shaped at all levels by the biological mechanisms that keep us alive. Just making computers smarter is not going to make them sentient. Finally, our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. And even human consciousness generally, it's just a tiny region in a vast space of possible consciousnesses. Our individual selves and worlds are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. Now, these are fundamental changes in how we understand ourselves, 
But I think they should be celebrated because, as so often in science, from Copernicus, we're not at the center of the universe, to Darwin, we're related to all other creatures, to the present day. With a greater sense of understanding comes a greater sense of wonder and a greater realization that we are part of and not apart from the rest of nature. And when the end of consciousness comes, There's nothing to be afraid of, nothing at all. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad you guys. Fascinating, powerful. Don't see how it changes the outcome. No, I, it doesn't necessarily um, change a lot of things. This was I found this TED talk through reading um, this book, Psychotherapy for Psychosis. It came out in 2019, and uh, Garrett, who's a clinician and works for many years with clients that have psychosis just uses it um, for normalization with clients that are interested in this sort of thing and cognizant and able to understand because I know there's a lot of different concepts in there um, but yeah I just think it's an, an interesting perspective that can add and not take away from our work hopefully Yes, the book info. Yeah, it's actually linked at the end of this training as well. But if you look up Garrett and psychotherapy for psychosis, I have a picture of the book at the end too. So you should see it in your slides. So from here, I really want to reflect more on reality and how we can work with it with our clients that have a different reality. There is a social consensus of what is real and what is not. Um, for someone who is colorblind, though, they experience a different reality. As that video showed, we're each perceiving with our, what our senses and brains have evolved to register and what our minds can conceptualize. Um, we live through our eyes and ears, but we're not living in complete picture of sound and vision. I don't have x-ray vision. I don't have sonar. Our reality is among many possibilities of the actual world. And hopefully you can use that video or just those examples of colorblind, x-ray vision, sonar to help validate the differences that they're experiencing in their reality. You don't have to necessarily collude with the content of their reality, but acknowledge the differences, normalize the experience, and try to open them up to share more about their reality. Yeah, it is fair. It's, it's very difficult to dislodge strong beliefs and behaviors associated with it. Um, we'll talk more about that and hopefully we can come up with some brainstorming together. But another way to approach a client's experience of psychosis and reality is to talk about the feeling of their reality, to validate that feeling. Because oftentimes the feeling of reality that is so strong is the evidentiary chain that supports their reality. And one way to do this is to illustrate the overlap between dreams and psychosis. Both are compelling subjective realities You don't say, I imagined I had a dream last night. You say, I had a dream last night. And it's same with voices. You don't say, I imagined a voice. You say, I heard a voice. So a voice can be perceived as a subjective reality that
that's as vivid as a dream. So we as therapists can say we don't interpret an event in the same way a client does, or we may not share a particular belief, but we can avoid saying or implying that the client's experiences aren't real. So what happens if my client says, why am I not supporting or validating their reality directly? What if they say, why don't you believe me if we say these really nice things, but we're not agreeing with them? And this is directly from Garrett's book. Um, it's a script that he's written out to help with clients. And I think it's a really nice thing that you can adapt and use in your practice when it comes up with clients. Uh, it says, I have a version of reality that fits well enough with the views of others that I can work and relate to other people. My version of reality suits me well enough for me to do what I need to do to get on with the business of living, but I don't claim to have a lock on reality. You have a version of yourself in the world that overlaps mine in many ways, but there are important differences that bring you into conflict with the people around you who don't share your view. This difference of views is the source of considerable suffering for you. I'm very interested in how your view of yourself and your world came about. Tell me more about how your view of reality came to being. And it's not to say that everyone that has these experiences has conflict or suffering, but if they're coming to us and they have an identified goal with CBT for psychosis, it kind of makes sense for this example. So here are a couple different ways that we can approach someone's reality. Um, some of these are theories, some of these are just acknowledging the complexities. So if we think about a delusion, which a lot of you are working with, the problem lies outside of themselves, outside of their control. And the way that they try to find control within the delusion is a way that we can start to approach the delusion. Um, if I think of psychodynamic, let's think of a statement like, I am a ghost. If someone says that, that's a delusional belief, right? But if someone says, I feel like a ghost, it's a figurative statement. They're feeling something deeply. So that could be if your client has a delusion of some sort that they are something, we could try to explore that in a psychodynamic lens of an altered self state. And maybe there's some negative beliefs or thoughts under that that we can explore. And cognitive biases really relates to cognitive distortions. So how we perceive events. And I think educating our clients with psychosis about cognitive distortions can be very, very beneficial as one way to approach new delusional thoughts that arise. So let's say your client's in a park and there, he notices children running in the opposite direction and he gets a general sense of foreboding. And then he has this automatic negative thought that says they must think I was a child molester and they were running away from me in fear. So right there, we can try to gently reflect that that's jumping to a conclusion. That's a cognitive distortion. That's something we can work with there. So we're not saying like, that's not correct, but we're saying, look, our mind has these negative patterns. Everyone has them, all or nothing thinking, fortune telling, um, 
overgeneralization, so many cognitive distortions, and perhaps that can be a way in to talk with your clients about these things. And then stress vulnerability can be a really helpful tool because we can talk about the impact of trauma and stress and how they may have heard that the neighbors were talking about them, but it seems to get really intense when they're not sleeping, or it seems to get really intense when they're not getting along with their partner. We can kind of build these connections with the stress vulnerability model. So these are all different ways we can try to approach their reality. There's no correct ultimate way. And we have really complex cases. So I think it's just good to try to broaden our scope and broaden the way we think about things when we're approaching our clients with psychosis. And our approach also matters in how we view their symptoms, right? So we can approach delusions that you know, outside of really fixed delusions that they don't want to examine, they don't want to work us on, work with us about as beliefs that are subject to evidence. And we want to work with them on gathering and evaluating evidence for delusions. And hopefully the goal is a loosening or even a change in delusional beliefs. Perhaps your client will never not think a certain delusion, but if they will loosen it, if it will help with some safety behaviors, that's a win in my book. Hallucinations are viewed as automatic thoughts. They perceive them origin, originating externally, and they're maintained by safety behaviors and dysfunctional beliefs about the power of the voices. So our therapeutic work there involves debating the content of what the voices say, really once again, examining the evidence for it, but also noticing the similarities between the content of the voices and their beliefs about themselves. Because usually if you have negative voices, there's some negative underlying beliefs that we wanna examine. And lastly, negative symptoms. These are not worked with as much, um, but by working with on either hallucinations or delusions, it kind of has a positive impact on negative symptoms because they might be isolating because of the voices. And if we work on the voices, the isolation goes down. But there is a positive value to the individual in their behavior a lot of the time for negative symptoms. The isolation, like I just said, protects against an increase in voices. So if we work on those, hopefully they go down. But also um, working on negative core beliefs can help negative symptoms in schizophrenia because there are a lot of self defeating beliefs associated with that lack of socialization, that lack of motivation, those negative symptoms. Okay, and then trauma and psychosis. I know you guys already talked about this in the chat. I think it's important to note that people with psychosis are more than twice as likely to have been subjected to childhood abuse than others in the general population. And that increases if the child abuse was more than one kind, prolonged. It just, it's unfortunate, but it's a definite link. Uh, it's not the defining factor though. And that's important to note. There's genetics, there's environmental risk factors. 
and those can lead to psychosis through a myriad of pathways. Most importantly, when we think about psychosis and trauma, if we're trying to work with a client that has psychosis and trauma, we want to view it through the frame of resilience. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's a molding of vulnerabilities and strengths in the face of great stress. And I think that can be really powerful to talk about with your client if they're open to having those sort of conversations. And we also have to think about that loss and trauma can occur in our clients with psychosis time and time again, even when we're working with them. I had a client that's grandmother passed away and his voices got significantly worse. And so it's important that we think about that as an ongoing thing that our clients a lot of times with psychosis have to deal with, especially if they're homeless and have other unfortunate circumstances going on. And the last thing I'll say for how we approach CBT for psychosis, it's important to consider people's culture. What do they believe about illness? Do they believe in supernatural remedies, natural remedies, medical, psychological? How do they approach help-seeking behaviors? Is that acceptable for them? And then the boundary between the self and others. We're very individualized in the West a lot of the time, but in Eastern societies, that boundary is much um, less distinct. And the society and the family kind of go hand in hand a lot more. So I think it's good to, whenever we're working with delusions, hallucinations, that we're trying to identify the cultural values and support to help facilitate that change and really trying to work to understand their point of view through their identified culture as well. So I'll pause here because I see there's a lot going on in the chat. <laughs> can you work within a delusion to help find solutions? I do think you can. I, I, I We're going to have an example of working with someone talking about their first experience of psychosis uh, that happened when they were younger and they're not saying directly that it's psychosis or that it's a delusion. Um, and the after effects of it is that he doesn't wanna go outside. So the delusion creates this safety behavior that isn't really beneficial to his life and he wants to change. So I do think it's possible to work within a delusion, but it's it's up to them of what, what do they want to work on, right? If they don't want to work on anything, it, it's, we're kind of stuck. I had a client with a fixed delusion that she was a spy for Donald Trump. And I, there was no way I could change that. That was it. She was on meds. She, it, that, that was the end of that. But I could work on the feelings associated with the job of how stressful it was. And if we could take some time to talk about things together and how can I help support her feeling more positive and less stressed. So I can work within del the delusion to reduce her sense of stress that she kept talking about. But if she didn't wanna do that, I wasn't going to do that. So sometimes I try to find a way in there. Um, then I see, how do you help clients feel safe when talking about their voices makes them louder and more threatening? Yeah, I think with, with anything in therapy, it's when we acknowledge what's going on, 
it's, it's good in that the power of it goes away, but then sometimes things can feel worse after. Um, I think it's important for when voices become louder and more threatening, we have a, a safety plan of what to get through um, during those times. A lot of times we start off with distraction, but also, you know, deep breathing, positive things to say to yourself. But hopefully we can also start to work on a voice diary, which is something we're gonna talk about here and that we can see the patterns of what are they saying when they're louder, when they're more threatening, what's working to help you calm down when they're louder and more threatening, trying to just find things that work and don't work, but it is a process and it does take time and it is distressing at the start. And I know it's hard for us as clinicians to be there and hold that space with the distress, but it's, it's important. And for a lot of people over time, it, it helps. If the word delusion is triggering for a client to hear, is there another way we can label them? Yes, I say delusion throughout this training, but when I talk with clients, I don't really use delusion unless they like to understand delusion as that way. So I would rather use the situation. So you could come up with a phrase for them. Like um, when my client that was a spy would be like, spy work, how's your spy work going? Let's talk about your spy work. Um, or for if, you know, the client that feels like he's going to be assassinated, you can say, let's work on this assassination plot. Like it's best to use their own language or descriptions that they identify in session. And we're just bouncing ideas off. Okay, what could we put this as a name so I can check in with you about this later on, make sure you're feeling okay and safe. And I do that for voices too. I'm, I'm not saying like, how are your auditory hallucinations? And I rarely even say like voices unless they want that too, because usually the voice has a name. And so I use the name of the voice. Thank you guys so much. The next thing we're gonna do and is watch a video of where we're putting this to practice and examining the evidence for a delusional belief. This audio does not have closed captions and it is not the best, but I there is in the link for the PowerPoint slides, there is a transcript that was typed up of this video. So you can click that, that link and follow along. What to say? Just, I want you to see what comes up for you when you're watching this video. Um, focus on what you like about what the therapist is doing, what stands out to you. Um, how's the client behaving, whatever it brings up to you, any questions, concerns during the course of the dialogue, and then we'll discuss after the video. Fine, Majir, that's been quite helpful what we've spoken about so far. There were one or two things that we had talked about just earlier today in the last week that I just wondered if we could explore a little bit further, very much at your own pace, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine, but you did talk about an incident it seemed to start a lot of this off back a few years, I think when you were rather younger. I just wondered if you might be able to tell me just a little bit more about what happened. We've not gone into detail about it. And you can go into as much or as little detail as you want about it. But it would be quite helpful just to know a little bit more about what, what went on. Do you mean what I... And why it upset you so much? Do you know the, the incident which happened when I was 17? 
Mm, I think you mentioned something around about that time. Yeah. Um, I went to the pub and uh, I think I got drunk. Um, I met a couple of guys there as well and uh, they kind of offered me to a lift back home. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up in their place and mm -hmm. uh, I think they asked me for uh, to do a sexual act on them. Right. Um, I, I think I got scared then, and um, I didn't know what to do. So. Uh, seem to start off some of these feelings about negative feelings about people and I could understand you know you'd feel fairly negative about those two men um, but other people I think it's sort of spread to be to other people as well and I just wondered how that happened I mean was there anything else that happened that linked with that incident um, I think I, I was kind of running away and uh, there was a bus stop where a couple of guys were standing there and uh, uh, they looked at me and they knew what happened uh, and uh, I just started getting words in my head like shit, um, mm -hmm. useless and Um, so, uh, I think later on I, uh, I find it quite difficult to, uh, to meet people and, um, I think they, they knew what happened and, uh, um, and then I get these kind of words in my mind again and uh, yeah. like people look down at me because of what happened mm. and uh, Could I just ask about the two men you mentioned that you thought they knew what had happened in fact you're fairly convinced that you they knew what happened but how was yeah, that I mean what, what what was how did they work that out or how did they, they know if they were standing outside uh, I mean, I think they, uh, I was sweating, I think I, uh, I was shaky and, uh, I think I was confused and, uh, that was in the middle of the night, so, uh, so they must, must have known. So what do you think they'd have known? They'd have, they'd have known by looking at you that you were quite anxious, upset. But do you think they knew something about the incident that had happened? Why you were upset? 
Yeah, I think they knew about the incident. Um, I wasn't from the area and I was running and uh, mm-hmm. I was confused and mm-hmm. it was in the middle of the night, so mm-hmm. that must be it, that must be they, they knew uh, they knew that uh, what happened up in the flat. Mm. Okay, I wonder about that a little bit and I think it might be worth us exploring that a little bit further um, as time goes on. Um, I think you also felt that then other people knew because of these two men, is that? I just wonder how that might, how you believe that could have happened. I don't know how, how it happens, but uh, right. when you talk to people, they about the incident and they look down at you and uh, you start getting these uh, what I call vicious mm-hmm. um, like useless and failure and you never succeed in anything so when you say vicious there, you mean sort of vicious comments, or do you mean vicious in a sort of broader sense? Um, it's just a word I I uh, I use to uh, to kind of label these thoughts mm-hmm. because they are so painful and so uh, spiteful, and I uh, I just call them vicious, and they they attack me whenever I'm around people. So. I, um, that's why I, I don't feel comfortable around people, really. Okay. That's been really helpful, just talking through that incident, because I'm a bit clearer about now how this has all developed. Um, I don't think we're going to need to go back in much detail over it, but it may be useful to be able to discuss it a little bit further at a later stage, uh, if that's okay with you. For the moment, though, we can, we can leave that and maybe move on to other things. Um, I really don't want to discuss it again. It's it's really uh, it's uncomfortable. So I think it's really just how it's influenced you that that we may may return to, but very much at your pace when you're able. And as I say, not necessary to go into the inc- well. In fact, you're saying not, so we won't go back into the incident itself unless you decide to do so later. Thanks very much. Okay. What I kind of deduced from this is that there there was a traumatic um, experience for him. Yes, cultural implications, we don't know, but there's a lot of shame we can see that he's feeling about it. And he says they asked him to do sexual favors. We don't know if that, you know, was turned into a more violation or what happened or if it was just the asking, he doesn't really want to talk about it more. And we're really respecting that, but it's very clear that it was a traumatic event that happened to him. And it seems to have created this vicious entity, these voices that he says, and that other people knew about this traumatic experience. And for him, because there's multiple videos of this that I have linked at the end, 
it really causes him to stay inside. He doesn't like to go outside. He says that that's when things get worse. So this video was really approaching the dialogue by examining the evidence for this delusional belief. We're not labeling anything directly as psychosis. It's the beginning of therapy. We're just trying to gain a greater point of view from his past experiences where we can pinpoint when things started to change for him and become more distressing. And I really like how uh, David Kingdom inquired about these things. He kind of, well, he does use Socratic questioning, misguided discovery. Um, Socratic questioning tries to uncover relevant information. We're doing accurate listening and reflection by the therapist, trying to summarize and ask synthesizing and analytical questions. And the goal with Socratic questioning is that eventually we get to the view that our thoughts are hypotheses or guesses that are open to debate. That's the ultimate goal. And yes, he's not pushing him, him Sandra. That's a great point. And we can see through this reflection that it started off as negative feelings about people. And we're trying to understand how it created that other people could know his thoughts. And we, we can see through the exchange that he thinks others must have known because of how he was acting, that he was sweaty, shaking, confused. And the therapist is, you know, gently asking again, how, how would they know about the incident if you, you know, just from you being sweaty or anxious? And it's clear from his response that's written on this slide that he just says, that must be, that must be. And it's kind of this reaction of like, I, that, that is what happened. And he doesn't want to discuss it more. And he leaves it at that, but we're, we're reflecting. We're showing that these two things don't necessarily go together, but we're not denying them, but we're kind of trying to introduce questions and introduce doubt. And the evidence is the glue of the delusional narrative about this. It can be a single life-changing event in this case for, for this gentleman, or it could have been a sequence of gradually accumulating evidence based on a period of ideas of reference. That could mean after the fact of this one occurrence, this, this trauma that happened and everyone knew what happened to him, people know his thoughts. And he didn't doesn't sound like he told people about it. So then Whenever he goes outside, he sees multiple people looking at him funny or looking down at him. He's inferring things negatively. And so that's just reinforcing more and more that people know his thoughts based on these ideas of reference, these looks from other people when he's gone outside. And we're trying to see how the delusion has been knit together and reinforced over time. And it ends with how he doesn't want to discuss it again. And the therapist honors this request and really clarifies that we're not going to talk about it again unless you want to. And really it's about how the event influenced him more than talking about the event itself. So I just think these are really good ways to try to explore with our clients how these beliefs came to be 
if our clients are open to having this dialogue. Any final thoughts about that exchange? What can I say when my client asks me if I see what she sees? Yeah, I've had clients that um, she would see, chil see children that were there and she would say that they were hers and she would try to go up and, and, and take them. And I would try to redirect her because we'd be going on walks together and I would say look I know I know your children I know where they are they're in they're in Chula Vista they're not here but they they must remind you of them what reminds you about them and try to redirect her and focus because it was a safety behavior you can't just like walk up and grab children it doesn't doesn't work out very well um she would also see like animals that weren't there and she would ask like do you see what I see and I would say no but I see this dog over there, like, you know, it's just, I just see something different than you, but I wasn't saying, no, I don't see what you see and what you see is not real, but I'm still trying to be honest about that. I don't see what you see, but I had a good therapeutic relationship with her. We would go on these walks together. So I had this trust that I was respecting her reality, but she was also respecting my reality and we were allowed to have differences. Um, these are some key themes on this slide for examining the evidence, these do's and don'ts. And I think they're just good that you can keep as a checklist in your mind or print out the slides or help with your interns because these are the things we wanna be doing with our clients when we're talking with them about um, delusions. Uh, and even voices, pretty much any you know, distressing psychosis. I will say um, triggers are really for when there's new situations, right? Because for this one example, this was the first situation where this happened. But as we all know, um, with these delusions, there, there are new experiences that reinforce the, the delusions. And that can often be a jumping off point to try to understand what was happening before this new belief emerged or this new reinforcement in your belief. And for this one client, it, you know, it seems that a trigger would be going outside. And then some don'ts uh, in general. I know collusion is difficult because there are delusions that are fixed and there are safety behaviors. And a lot of times, you know, if a client that's flying and going to jump off a roof, if we don't say something particular to them, like I'm not saying never collude with someone because there are scenarios where safeties are compromised and we have to do what we have to do in that scenario. Um, but in general, when we can, we, we don't want to because it's gonna break the trust in the long run if they ever learn otherwise that we don't believe that. Some other don'ts, humoring. I, I don't really like this example. It's from this book that was on the FSP book list. Um, so I have it around here somewhere, treating psychosis. And it's just a workbook for clinicians. It's cited at the end of these slides as well. And they have it as they're there now, everything will be okay. And that just sounds pretty condescending and pitying. And we don't really wanna do that with our clients. Nobody, not, not many people wanna be pitied. I don't think they, they want to be validated. They wanna be heard, but they don't want your pity. Um, so these are just some don'ts and I'll be honest, I have done 
I've dismissed symptoms sometimes. That has happened because of high caseloads and their SSI was at stake and we had to finish something else. And I prioritized that over their psychosis. And that was a really good wake up call for me to be like, okay, I need to take a step back because I'm not prioritizing what is happening to the client over what the needs of my program are. And I think that is a more common experience than not because of how many expectations are placed upon us as clinicians because of our caseloads, because of all the needs that our clients have. Um, so I think it's good to be honest with yourself and use this slide as a reflection. Doesn't mean you're a bad clinician if you ever do one of these things. It just means we too need to pause and reflect. So, I've talked about the ABC method before um, in the first training for CBT for psychosis, but it is a useful tool with clients. So I'm just going to mention it here one more time. Um, it's a way to illustrate the chain of events for how a belief or a voice comes to be and impacts someone. So we have the activating event. It could be a voice, a delusion, an automatic thought. We have the, uh, oh, sorry, the belief is the voice delusion or automatic thought from the activating event. And then the consequence is either behavioral or emotional. And we have to remember here that if the consequence is not distressing to them, we're not working on it with them. They have to want to change the outcome. They have to want to build awareness of the patterns that negatively impact them. And a good way to introduce this to clients is to use your own example of ABC in your life. So you could say um, an activating event is I get a phone call from my boss and I, my boss never calls me, which is good. I don't, <laughs> I'm doing my job. And my belief in my mind is, oh my gosh, am I fired? <laughs> and then the consequence is I am scared. I am anxious but everything's fine. I'm delivering this training to you now. It's okay, right? So it can be a really good example for our clients to use something like that, whether it be a call from the doctor, whatever, a call from the boss. It can show that we all have a tendency to misinterpret events, have a negative filter or bias towards things. And the other piece here is that we have to separate the A from the B. Sometimes they're smushed together. So for that gentleman in the video, he was asked for sexual, sexual favors. And at the same time, everyone could hear his thoughts that happened and this happened. But by examining the evidence, I think he was able to separate more out that this event happened and then this happened. So we're trying to show without telling that this activating event triggered this belief that one doesn't equate the other as both happening at the same time. And it's only when we can separate the activating event from the belief, can the belief be examined as something that can be challenged. So what would we wanna do next? Let's say our client understands that the activating event of this trauma led to this belief. And let's say he understands that the activating event is separate from the belief. I would say that we would want to work on those vicious thoughts because those seem to be really bothering him. It seems like he doesn't want to go outside because of them. 
I'm usually not the one to tackle a delusion head on. There's usually some voices to go along with that delusion and we can usually target that negativity of the voices and see if that helps the intensity of the delusion go down as well. So I know I'm on a normalization kick, but I think this is a really great thing to do with clients if it interests them to normalize the experience of hearing voices. Um, this is a way to conceptualize about talking about voices in our head. I just wanna make sure I have enough time. I've done so much talking. <laughs> um, but we want to use client-specific language. So when we're talking about this with that client from the video, we're saying, you know, those vicious thoughts. And this intervention would be used if the client has insight into the fact that this voice is separate from his internal dialogue or he's open to that line of thought. And the way we would approach it with them is you could draw this out or you could print this out and you would say, we all have this inside ear in our mind. We have this internal dialogue. Sometimes I'll talk to myself if I'm making slides for a presentation and putting it off, I'll say, come on, Jean, just finish your slide. So it's a determined part of myself trying to provide guidance or giving me a command to follow that internal inside voice. In both instances, I know the voice I'm hearing in my mind is part of me. There's another instance also of if you make a mistake, you get a critical voice, right? I carried all my groceries up the stairs and I broke the eggs and come on, why couldn't you be patient? So sometimes a thought can rise up, but instead of us hearing the thought in our inside ear in our mind, it slips through a window in our mind. And this window is never completely closed. And we hear the thought as if it were coming into our outside ear. And it sounds like someone is speaking to us. An example of this is we often hear our name called, but our name wasn't called, right? If we're walking down the street and we think, oh, and there's nobody there. <laughs> well, we thought we heard someone say, Jean, nope. Another example is I hear my phone ring or vibrate but that didn't happen. Those are everyday examples where uh, it's just our thoughts are rising up and slipping through the window into our outside ear. And for everyone, this window is open just like a small crack, but sometimes the window gets pushed wide open and stuck there. And lots of thoughts start to slip through that window to the outside ear. Stress can do that. Stress can open the window when your mind is under pressure. Worry, worry can push your thoughts out of your mind, out to your outside ear. Lack of sleep can open the window. And then as we know, drugs can open the window. And so what's good to talk about this with your client is that reducing stress can help close the window. Different techniques for coping with these vicious voices can help close the window. Medications can sometimes help. A better understanding of what we're worried about. And sometimes painful things have happened to people that leave them with a lot of stress in their minds that opens the window and it's never going to fully close, but that's okay. We can think about ways to reduce the stress that keeps this window too open. So I really like this because 
it's a simple way to display and differentiate with your clients between their inside and outside ear, which can become indistinguishable for people with psychosis. So you can hopefully have some drawing skills with your client and draw this out with them and practice explaining with some new clients. I find it's really useful for young clients that are just experienced psychosis are really open more so to trying to understand like how this came about or why am I experiencing this? And it can be really normalizing to say, well, everyone experiences this. It's just, you're experiencing it a bit more and we can work together to see if we can change that. I know that a lot of our clients um, may not be cognizant enough, may have limited cognitive abilities, and that may be too much to talk about with them. So really a simplified way of doing this is just deciding what is the role of their voices. Are they issuing instructions? Are they giving them information? Are they engaging in question and answer exchanges? Or are they evaluating them? And I think it's another way to normalize because our internal voice does one of these four things too, right? We gotta get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> we judge you know, ourselves and others. Like these are things that everyone experiences. So this is another way to really normalize the experience of um, voice voices. So what do we do with these voices? I talked about this earlier. A voice diary can be a really useful tool for clients with psychosis. I know that clients don't like paperwork or homework, and I get that. A lot of people have a smartphone. You could honestly type just a daily log or check-in overall for the day with your voices. This is written out as that initial experience of the gentleman from the video. So this would be something we would do with them to conceptualize the first one, because those men asked me for a sexual favor. The voice was vicious. It told him he was shit, useless. The distress of the voice from one to 100 was 80%. And the emotions he felt was defeated and fearful. So he's been staying inside to cope. And because of that, just avoidance, it's not really reducing the distress of the voices. So what we want to do in conjunction with this voice diary with clients is we want to test out coping skills, because as we all know, from the ways that we each cope, some work, some don't. <laughs> so this is a list from uh, the Hearing Voices Network Australia. You can Google this and it comes up as this beautiful big PDF with a variety of techniques that you can see your client circle one and try one this week, try one different one. The go-to is distraction. And that is a good starting point, but research has shown that over time, it's not as effective as coping skills that promote acceptance and assertiveness towards the voices. So distraction is a starting off point, but we really do want to move towards other things as well. Um, so I'll just take a moment to see if you guys can read this very small print and tell me. <laughs> no, you can't. That's fair. <laughs> oh, I should get the link. I apologize about that. Well, I'm sure a lot of you have already done many of these things with your clients. And I'd love to hear what's helpful 
to them, what's not helpful to them. I know for a lot of um, the clients I've worked with, building a routine to, to just get through the day, try to do five things that day, make the bed, take a shower, go outside, eat lunch. Like it can be really five concrete tasks can be really helpful to cope with the voices because we're still empowering them to do things. And oftentimes these voices are negative and, and telling them that they can't do things. So their ability to challenge that by just going throughout their day can be powerful. So here's an example of, let's say we shared that with our client of he went outside and the voice was still there. This vicious voice told him that people were looking at him and they knew what had happened to him. And the distress of the voice was 75%. And his emotions, it doesn't have to be like a literal, I'm scared, I'm anxious. You could, he could just tell you how he feels, which is he feels like a turtle that wants to hide in a shell. And the coping strategies he used were 10 deep breaths. He finished his errand and he told his voices that I would meet with them at a later time. So I know for anxiety, people have said like, I will worry at 3 p.m. today. Until then, I'm not going to worry. And the same thing can be done with our voices. We can be a, you know, a baby skill of assertiveness of like, I will talk with you at this time and assert some control over the situation. And it's important too, because a lot of the emotions that go along with psychosis, you know, fear, anxiety, those are things that a lot of people struggle with too. And emotions are kind of like weather patterns. They come and they go. And so that's really what we're trying to focus on here is we can't control the voices and how they come and go, but we can tackle those emotions associated with them. So this is just the goal for our clients to, to build awareness, to lessen the distress that these voices cause because we can't make them go away, but at least we can hopefully reduce the distress of them. Um, so our final sort of little chunk here, just being mindful of time. Yeah, we've got time. Um, we know from talking earlier that voices can often reflect internal negative self-talk. So that's what we're gonna focus on now, how these schemas and negative core beliefs can exacerbate the intensity of psychosis. So what are schemas? Schemas are characterized by automaticity. That means they involve information processing that is outside of our awareness. The schema is determining the process itself. And these schemas tend to be reaffirming. There's that confirmation bias where we're searching for information that the value of that information is determined by how it confirms or supports our pre-existing schemas. And these are self-maintained, right? Um, even in the face of alternative evidence. So an individual doesn't usually wanna be negative or view themselves as a loser. It's simply that the schemas are determinative and operate outside of our immediate conscious awareness. Schemas are common throughout all mental health diagnoses, common schemas in depression are failure, rejection, depletion. In anxiety, there's always this, you know, lens of threat and injury and just hypervigilance. 
that comes along with those. And these schemas are really supported by the negative core beliefs about ourselves, others, and the world. And for today, we're gonna to focus on those negative core beliefs because schema therapy is a whole thing. And David, who's on the call, is much more an expert than I. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so well, I have worked through negative core beliefs for clients with psychosis, but uh, schemas are like the next hurdle that I will get back to you about. But here is a great infographic from this blog at the bottom that goes through some common core beliefs that people struggle with outside of psychosis, right? I'm pretty sure if we took a look at ourselves, there's one of these that we may have a little insecurity towards, or it may hit home with us a little bit. And I think it's good to talk and think about core beliefs with clients that have psychosis because the voices can often reflect a negative core belief um, that was there before the psychosis, but just becomes more magnified. Um, so we're looking for consistent patterns of their experiences. What are they perseverating on? Um, I, I like to share my slides with my father. He likes to learn about mental health. And he said, what are they perseverating on? What is their swamp of despair? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if it's a despair, but I think it's really good to look through this with our clients and try to think through how these things come to be. And how we do that is talking about how these things come to be. It's psychoeducation. We all have early life experiences. And if you're human, there's some negative ones, right? And these negative experiences create these core beliefs or schemas. And these create unhelpful assumptions about ourselves, about others and the world that are tainted by these core beliefs. And I view a lot of these unhelpful assumptions like cognitive distortions, and they feed into these negative automatic thoughts that pop into our minds and are associated with really intense emotions. And these cognitive distortions reinforce the negative core beliefs. I think of comes to mind like a client that was in foster care and was abandoned and she kept having relationships with people where she would push them away and she would know that they would leave her so she didn't have to be left and that was that negative core belief of abandonment that was really you know impacting her greatly so i think it's good to see how these negative core beliefs manifest in each person's life outside of psychosis in their patterns of behavior and you know the goal is that we build an awareness of these negative automatic thoughts emotions and behaviors because we're all going to have triggers to them we're all going to have things that make us feel maybe helpless at one time or another but our goal is to reappraise the, these beliefs and modify them. And hopefully that can reduce the vulnerability to the emotional distress when we're triggered. When we're triggered by new events, when we're triggered by thoughts or just negative automatic thoughts that we may not notice. And then we're just acting instead of reacting. And so it can just be a good way to reflect upon these negative thoughts with our clients as a way to kind of understand maybe there are some negative core beliefs underlying these negative thoughts that the voices say. 
So how do we do that with our clients? <laughs> uh, the technique is called vertical descent. And this is a way to try to dig beneath the automatic thoughts. We're trying to see what is the assumption underneath that thought? What's the interpretation? What's the deeper meaning? And vertical descent allows us to go from uh, a series of negative thoughts. We're trying to see if cognitive distortions emerge, that that's a starting off point, or at a deeper level, if there's some core beliefs. We're trying to look at the thought that lies behind each thought. And so here's an example of that for that client that we talked about in the video. This is just one potential, you know, way that this could go is the event. And this is directly um, like a worksheet in CB, this CBT book that is also cited. So you would write out what's the event or just ask your client, what's the event? And those guys asked me for a sexual favor and other people knew that it happened. And so it's not the most tactful way I realized for saying why, why does that bother you in a case of like trauma? But you could say, you know, what does it make you think that other people would think about you? And he would say that my privacy has been violated, that other people know about what happened years ago. And then you're trying to dig deeper. What would this mean about you? And he would reply, I would be ashamed. My family would know. They would be disappointed. And what would that mean about you if your family was disappointed in you? And he would reply that I failed them. And then you ask, what would it mean if you failed your family? And he replies that I am a failure. So in this hypothetical scenario, we're digging down to this negative core belief of defectiveness that's present there. And it's not always this simple. This is just a written out example, but I think it's a really good practice to try to understand our client's thought processes about these negative beliefs that can go with these voices. And I'm just gonna pause and check the chat really quick. Cause I like using the if then method. If blank happens, that means blank about me. Yeah. And I think, you know, core beliefs happen, as I've said, regardless of psychosis. Another example is just, you know, if as we get older, we may have insecurities about getting older and, and someone can say, what would that mean if you got old? And then someone says, it would mean I, I'm unattractive. And then you ask, what does it mean if you're unattractive? And the person says, my husband will leave me. What will it mean if your husband leaves you? Like it, it can become this, this big ball of just understanding. And there's lots of things to unpack within these. I just wanted to try to simplify it. So it can be, you know, a kind of like basic technique that you can start to use with your clients if you find it useful. Now that we, let's say we found this negative core belief of defectiveness with our client, how do we shift this with them, right? We all have negative beliefs about ourselves. How do we ourselves work on changing these beliefs? Um, we want to shift this negative self-appraisal. We wanna perhaps identify experiences where they haven't been a failure. If I think back to that voice diary where he accomplished his task, that's a small stepping stone to reinforce that he's not a failure because he was able to accomplish that task. So we can reinforce that. It's also really trying to shift to more positive self-talk that challenges the negative belief or challenges the voices directly. 
things that you can say to the voices that are positive about yourself, that are respecting yourself and setting some boundaries with the voices. And one way to do this is compassion-focused therapy. I think it is really useful for every single person on the planet to be more compassionate to themselves and to others. And compassion-focused therapy focuses on three emotional regulation systems that we all have. We all have a drive. We want to motivate and achieve our goals. We all can feel threatened, you know, anger, anxiety, fear. And then we all want to be soothed. You know, we want to feel safe. We want to feel satisfied, connected. And research on um, compassion-focused therapy has shown it to be an acceptable treatment for those with psychosis in that it helps reduce the symptoms of depression and enhance their self-esteem. So I'm not saying like this is going to reduce the voices or delusions, but the things that support those voices and delusions, those negative beliefs, that low self-esteem, it can really work on. So one way to do that is the four C's, which is catch it, check it, change it with compassion. So this is another tool you can see if it'll be useful for your client to continue to build awareness of what's going on with them and challenge them to create new coping skills that are more positive and impactful, hopefully. So we are noticing the thought, feeling, or sensation. Then we are checking the evidence for or against the thought. Is this a helpful way to think about it? Is this thought based on facts or my feelings? And the goal is to change it with compassion. We can acknowledge that it's just a thought, perhaps come up with a more reasonable, helpful, or rational thought, or think about how we can more be more compassionate with ourselves in this situation and in this moment. How can we be more understanding and kind? And for people with psychosis that have been through so much, kindness isn't, is a thing that is in short supply and we can always add more kindness. And the goal with catch it, um, check it, change it with compassion is that we're trying to get to compassionate self-correction. When we're changing the thought with compassion, we're trying to reference ways to be kind to ourselves. And we're directly working against those negative voices that tell us we're not worth it, that tell us we can't change, that tell us insert whatever thing the voices are telling your clients. And this could be a positive affirmation that they say to themselves. I think grounding statements can be really useful with voices or something positive to say to themselves if the voice keeps telling them like that vicious thought that they're shit. And you can say, I know that I am more than my voices. I know that I am more than this thought or acknowledge a positive belief about themselves. Um, it could be a soothing touch or smell. They could do some deep breaths, some small actions towards compassion can be meaningful. And then visualization. This can be an activity you do with them that you can reference when their voices overwhelm them or when they start to feel unsafe and you want to get them to feeling safe again. And one of these is to imagine what is their compassionate self look like? Are they accepting? Are they patient? Are they warm? What are the words 
that describe themselves and describe this compassionate self. And this can be an activity you do with them where you just brainstorm what is the compassionate self look like to you and how can we write that out? How can we build that into your life? If that doesn't interest them, another way is creating um, a compassionate space in your mind to go to with visualization. What's a safe place that you can help construct them in their mind that they can go to? What's a favorite memory of theirs? Or do they love the ocean, the mountains? And you can go through and create small details for them to focus on when things get overwhelming and go to this place in their mind with this visualization. And lastly, I feel like I can't end a training without talking about mindfulness. Um, <laughs> Compassion-focused therapy overlaps with mindfulness. The whole goal of all of these skills we've talked about today is that we're pausing and reflecting. And compassion is just another way to pause and reflect. And mindfulness involves the same intentionality in that we're paying attention to the present moment experience. And if the client's not mindful to their experience of psychosis, if they just avoid and just not acknowledge and compartmentalize, you can become lost in it. The goal is that by being open to the experience, by hopefully one day letting it come and letting it go, by accepting the psychosis for what it is and asserting yourself and your boundaries towards those voices, towards ways to feel safe, even though these delusional beliefs are really overwhelming them, that's a jumping off point. I also want to see what interventions will be helpful for your clients and which ones are you already using. So please feel free to write in the chat any questions you have, or just, I also was slightly selfish and did a poll <laughs> to see um, what you think would be helpful for your clients, because I really want to know how us as PMHP can help with skill building in these areas. So please let me know, yes, I think this will work or no, I don't. And I need to learn more about X, Y, and Z. That's really how we create our content is from your feedback directly. Uh, this is the book, Psychotherapy for Psychosis. It's so good. It's so helpful. I <laughs> wish I had read it sooner. I highly recommend it. Um, there is this free guide for how through CCI, which is from Australia and it's CBT for psychosis with your clients. It has free worksheets. It has free psychoeducation materials. It's like 50 pages long. And then these are all different videos on CBTP. That's where I found the video that we use today. Um, and it has more client interactions on there as well. And then references, there are some good books in here, good research if you're interested. I will end the poll and share the results. Oh, we have a lot. We have voice diary, ABC method, catch it, check it, change it with compassion, examining the evidence, vertical descent, and the normalization. Yes, normalization can be really, really powerful in reducing that shame. That can be a great starting off point. Well, thank you all so much. You work so hard every day and you know, they're lucky to have you. It's such tough work. <laughs> so thank you all for all that you do.